following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, January 8th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. Good to see all of you this morning. Uh, if you are a guest with us, my name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. and I get the privilege this morning of leading us in God's Word and before we jump in this morning, just a couple of quick thank yous first. Really, through the holiday seasons, uh, I don't know who's in the room, Pastor Tim, Mark, Ray, Dee, I don't, I don't really know who all is in the room right now, but I just want to take a quick moment and I guess speak on all of our behalf, who we're around, and, and just express a gratitude and a thankfulness to the Lord for the way that they so richly served us in God's word throughout the entire holiday season. Um, I, I pray even this morning now as I get back up here that I'm able to be half the blessing, really, that they were to me and to us throughout that season. Uh, and not just them, I, I want, I guess, on all of our behalf to express a thanks as well to Pastor Shelby uh, and all the musicians. I can't even begin to name and number all of the musicians who were involved this holiday season in providing such an amazingly rich uh, tapestry of expression of worship through the holidays. And it's just a reminder of God's kindness to us as we're able to come together to celebrate, to worship, to honor him in that way. So uh, on behalf of all of us, thank you to you guys, if you're in the room, um, all of you who were involved in that, thank you. Uh, it has been a blessing to just be a part of it through this season. Um, now I'm going to, to pray for us and, and then we're going to jump into God's word together. Father, we thank you uh, the, for the privilege that we have had again now as we're reminded that you call us together by your grace, that you speak to us through your word as we sing, as we reflect it in our prayers, as we hear it taught through your scriptures, that it's your voice by your spirit that's speaking and you've brought us here that our hearts could be changed, our desires transformed by your word and, and your spirit. And so we ask in the time that we've got together, you would do that very thing. And Jesus is a good name. Amen. Would you believe me? And this is a genuine question. Would you believe me if I told you that there was a pilot, he is now passed on, who served our country through three separate wars as an aerial pilot? And then in retirement, when the first Gulf War started, he was called in by the Secretary of Defense at the time to consult strategically on how we would go about engaging in that war. And his advice was taken such to heart that it shaped the entire strategy of our engagement in the first Gulf War. That, that same pilot in his three separate tours of battle, three different wars as a pilot, was undefeated in every aerial conflict that he was engaged in. That when he was asked to teach pilots at Nellis Air Force Base, at one of the more strategic Air Force training centers after uh, Vietnam, that he was undefeated in one-on-one -on -one battle and training. That he challenged every single pilot that went against him. To, if they would beat him, he would give them $40. And if he didn't beat them in under 40 seconds, he would give them $40. He was undefeated in his entire career. In his briefings and in his trainings throughout his career, he would develop what is called the Bible of military aerial combat. 
Once it was released by our nation's government, every other major developed nation with an Air Force service in its country took that resource and adopted it as their strategic guide. Some of you might be familiar with this guy if you're, if you're into reading some of the more modern leadership books because it was this same pilot who coined what many people speak about now as the OODA loop for decision making. It was a process that he put together for pilots to help them be able to observe, orient themselves, make a decision, and take action quickly in light of all the changing scenarios that they would face in combat. As he would go on to continue to serve, some would say that he became the most influential military thinker since Sun Tzu, who wrote The Art of War 2,400 years ago. While taking graduate classes at Georgia Tech in a time of service back here in the States, he was taking a class on thermodynamics, and a new theory came to his mind, a theory that was related to the maneuverability in his mind of aircraft that changed the idea of how people understood what planes were capable of and what they could do. And he used this theory in his work with the government to develop what we know as the modern F-15, 16, and 18 aircraft which have shaped and changed the entire landscape of aerial combat. Would you believe me if I told you that said pilot, who has now passed away, does not have a single building, barrack, ship, anything named after him? Would you believe me if I told you that with all of that accomplishment, he spent his entire military career raising his family, his wife, his kids in one and two bedroom apartments because in this entire military career, he was never promoted beyond the rank of colonel in the Air Force. Why? He refused to veer off of the path of his principles for the sake of his own personal promotion, for his own personal prestige. You see, he was driven by the desire to make a lasting contribution, he would say, to his country, even if it cost him the promotions that made him somebody in the eyes of his peers and the privileges and the comforts that came with them. Would you believe me if I told you that with that reality, said Pilate was thoroughly content and even proud? Of all the things that Colonel John Boyd is known for, all of the exploits and all of the accomplishments, if you go look him up, you will probably come across something that he became even more known for, which is how I was originally introduced to him. It's something that came to be known as Boyd's Roll Call. Because of his exploits and because of his career, he was sought after by many young officers in the Air Force that he would take on as mentees. He would mentor them. And he had a set speech that he gave every man that he mentored. So much so that to the man, the ones that were still alive and who had been with Dr. Colonel Boyd could write it down almost verbatim. And the speech would go like this. Boyd would say, Tiger. He called all of them Tiger. That was just his thing, right? <laughs> Tiger, one day you're going to come to a fork in the road. And you're going to have to make a decision about which direction you want to go. 
They all say, boy, but either raise his hand or if he was in a room, he'd mark on a board. If you go that way, you can be somebody. You'll have to make compromises. You'll have to turn your back on some of your friends. But you will be a member of the club. And you'll get promoted. And you'll get the good assignments. You're going to have to make choices. You, you can be somebody. In his military complex industrial world, that somebody came with rank and prestige and promotion and all that came with it. In the eyes of his peers, you could be somebody. That's what it meant. It's not much different from many of us in, in our lives. You, you can be somebody. Then they say he would raise his other hand or he would mark in the other way on the board. And he would say, or you can go that way. And you can do something. Something for your country and for yourself. But listen, if you decide you want to do something, you're probably not going to get promoted. And you may not get the good assignments. And you certainly will not be the favorite of your superiors. But you won't have to compromise yourself. You'll be true. True to your friends and true to yourself. And true to what matters. And your work might make a difference. To be somebody or to do something. In life, there is a roll call, boy would say. That's when you have to make a decision. Which way will you go? You want to be somebody? Or do you want to do something? Sage advice. It's advice that's not just reserved, though, for military officers or professionals. See, Boyd was putting his finger on and, and pointing to a much deeper reality. It's not just about their immediate context. It goes deeper. You see, in the life of a follower of Jesus, we all will face a roll call of sorts. The way of Jesus, the life of his disciple or apprentice in following him and his way, it's going to diverge at points from the way of contemporary success, the way of contemporary become, contemporarily becoming somebody, however we work that out. Being somebody in the world's eyes. Being someone in your peers' eyes. It's going to cost you. Boyd was right. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you a compromise of yourself. It's going to cost you a compromise of something that you claim to value the most. And as a follower of Jesus, everyone following him along his way is going to have to decide time and time again. How are we going to live? What is it we're going to live for? And I was reminded of Colonel Boyd and his roll call as I thought about coming back up here at the beginning of a new year because I think the start of a new year is in a healthy and even appropriate time to reckon again with this reality in life. And I know of no better place to begin dealing with that than Psalm 119. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Psalm 119. 
If you grab your Bible, if you have a, a hard copy in front of you, you can almost open it up to the dead middle of your Bible. Psalm 119 is just a handful of verses off from being the literal center of the Bible. You can make your way there, and as you hear me say we're going to be in Psalm 119 this morning, if you grew up in church or have some kind of familiarity, you, you might have just like started to stop breathing because you know that Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. 176 verses. We're not going to do them all this morning. In fact, we're going to spend the majority of our time in verses 33 through 40. We'll get there in a minute. But if you're not familiar with Psalm 119, it is one of the most amazing and beautiful chapters in the Bible. It arguably is the most highly stylized chapter in the Bible. Because as you look at it on the paper, you'll see that those 176 verses are separated into different stanzas. And each stanza in Psalm 119 represents a different letter in the Hebrew alphabet. This entire psalm is actually an acrostic poem. So the Hebrew alphabet, so if you took the, the English alphabet, A to Z, imagine writing a poem with eight verses under each letter. And the first word of each verse corresponds with that letter. That's what the psalmist has done in Psalm 119. It's an acrostic poem through the Hebrew alphabet. And again, if you have some kind of familiarity with Psalm 119, you're probably aware of its unique structure, but you're also probably most accustomed to Psalm 119 being focused on God's nature and his word. An intense focus throughout Psalm 119 on who God is and the necessity and sufficiency of his word. That's true. It's not only highly stylized and beautiful, but it focuses intensely on God and his word. But what we tend to miss in Psalm 119 is that there is a narrative flow to the poem. There is a a narrative arc to what the psalmist writes. Psalm 119, it's not just great little quotable, memorizable nuggets about the Bible. Though what it has there is true. There's more to it. He's taking us along on a journey. And I want us to see how he begins and where he gets us as he gets us into Psalm 119, verses 33 through 40. So if you've got it open, start at verse 1. Let me just show you. I'm just going to show you a bit of this because sometimes we're just not aware of what's actually there. In verse 1, the the psalmist lays it out for us. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Right there, the psalmist tells us what it is he is most concerned about. He's concerned about, and he's going to focus on our way, our path, our manner of living. That's what that way actually means. And he starts this psalm saying that there is blessing from God upon those whose way, whose manner of living is according to God's law. And so the expectation is that as people would hear this and read this and hear that first verse, something in you would say, I want that life. I want to experience that blessing. And in the first eight verses, he expounds upon this blessing. But then as he moves on to the second stanza and the third stanza, the fourth stanza, into the fifth stanza where we're going to be, 
The psalmist is aware of the reality that there's danger along this way. There are threats to walking in this way. There are threats to living in the way of the Lord's statutes upon which this blessing from God comes. And each stanza kind of picks up on a different danger, right? So in verse 9, he begins, how can I keep my way pure? The threat of impurity is very real. And so throughout the stanza, the, the psalmist speaks of how with his mind and his speech and his emotions, even his thoughts fixed on God's ways, God's word and his way, or the means by which this man or woman lives in this manner or way of living that remains pure according to God's way. This is how it works. But with each stanza, he moves on. The, the next stanza, it's not about purity. It's about the danger that comes to living in God's way, according to God's way, in the midst of a hostile environment? What about when people don't agree with you? Or they find your commitment to the Lord and his ways offensive? And they begin to threaten you. Hostility arises because of this. Well, that's the situation the next stanza deals with. Take away from me the scorn and contempt, for I've kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. He knows in the midst of hostility towards living in the way of the Lord, the temptation to take a different path, to go a different way is all too real. And in the next stanza, it's not the danger that lurks from impurity or hostility, what about the, the threat and the danger that comes from just bearing the weight of life in a fallen world? When brokenness in a fallen world almost feels like it's too much to even bear. My soul clings to the dust. My soul, he says in verse 28, melts away for sorrow. That stanza, the psalmist, begins to expound again how even in the unbearable weight of life and sorrow and discomfort and depression and pain in a fallen world, it's, it's to his word that I cling. That even in that, the way towards life is running in the way of his word, he says in verse 32. And so now as we come into verses 33 through 40, you pick up a new stanza, right? A new danger is going to be present but this threat is a threat that's far more subtle. In fact, as we work our way through it, I, I, I thought it's almost as if the psalmist was aware of the roll call. Aware that there was a decision that was going to have to be made time and time again on which way we would go. And as you look down at your Bibles and Psalm 119, starting in verse 33, you're going to see right above that verse the Hebrew letter He written out. You can say He if you want. That's okay. I'm sure I don't even say it right. But it's reminding you that the next eight verses, each verse is going to begin with that Hebrew letter. And here's what's interesting about this. In Hebrew, whenever you place the letter He in front of a verb... It does something to it. It makes that verb 
causative. It makes that verb, in essence, a way that you are saying, cause me to, whatever the verb is. It's a causative verb. So in this stanza, for the first time now, in Psalm 119, everything that we're going to read up to the last verse is the psalmist petitioning God to cause him to do something. Their prayers, their petitions, that's what's happening here. This is a stanza of humble dependence upon the Lord. Which again, I thought was timely because this is also the season in the year when we tend to resolve ourselves to so many things. Resolve ourselves to do this and to be this and to change this and resolve ourselves in our strength and with our wisdom and with this strategy, with this thing I just listened to and with this book I just read, I'm going to do all these things. Until at different intervals in the day, week, or year, we we find ourselves beating ourselves up for our inability to do those things. The psalmist reminds us here in this stanza that in the most important of all things, our way, our, our manner of living, we are entirely dependent people. Psalm 119, verses 33 through 40. These are anti-resolutions. I can't cause me God to. In myself, I can't. I need you to cause me to. That's what we're finding in these verses. Spurgeon said it best when he said, a sense of dependency and a consciousness of extreme need pervade these verses. And so for us this morning, as we get ready to kind of walk through these eight verses, I I want in the back of your mind you to be asking yourself, how, how might the psalmist please, how might the psalmist petitions shape the trajectory of my heart and year in 2023? Are his petitions and his pleas reflective of my own heart? Let's listen to him and let's follow the flow because there's even a flow within the stanza. There's not just a flow to the whole thing. There's a flow within the stanza. He begins in verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, that the way of your statutes and I will keep it to the end. I kid you not, we could spend multiple weeks just walking through each phrase in verse 33, right? The humility on display in the psalmist's plea to be taught by God. Teach me. I know I do not have in me what I need. I know I don't know what I need to know. And I'm not going to look to myself for the answers. I'm not looking to that book for the answers. I'm not looking to that neighbor for the answers. I'm going to the only one who can do in me and for me what's necessary for life. Teach me, oh Lord. We could spend a week on each phrase. But what was captivating to me is what he actually petitions the Lord to teach him. The way of your statutes. He's not asking God to personally tutor him in the Bible 
so that he can increase his knowledge of doctrines, so that he can fill out his files of theological divinity and knowledge. He's not asking God for a body of truth. He's petitioning God regarding a way of life, a way of living, the way of your statutes. If the way was just robotic, slave you know, adherence to a set of rules, then he wouldn't need to pray in verse 34, give me understanding. Give me discernment. That's the weight behind that word understanding. If the way of the Lord was just, this is what I said, this is what I do, this is what I said, this is what I do, just a body of truth and knowledge and not a, a way that it's discerned and applied to life, you don't need understanding, but that's what he wants. He wants to know the way, the path of life that God has laid out for his people. And he needs discernment and understanding along that way. Not necessarily discernment between right and wrong. Again, in coming to God's word, those things increasingly become pretty clear. It's discernment between good and best. A life in a world of options and variety. That I need you to teach me and give me wisdom and understanding that I might be able to discern in a world full of, of options in front of me what conforms to the way, the path, the manner of living that is most reflective of you. That comes along this path of blessing. Teach me and give me understanding. Lead me, he says in verse 35, in the path of your commandments, for I delight in them. Again, what I want you to hear this morning, even more than picking everything apart, is I want you to hear the humility in the psalmist. If I'm going to follow this way, you have got to lead me in it. This is a prayer for the strength Teach me the way of your statutes. Give me the wisdom and the understanding to be able to apply them in a world of varieties and options and decisions, but I need you to give me the strength and lead me to take the steps to actually go. What humility right here. This is an anti-resolution. Right? In the church world, it is so much of the new year, at least in my own experience in my own life, has been how can I muster up the right wisdom and strategy and energy to change things in the way that I live so I can follow more closely to Jesus. I, I can keep better company with Jesus in, in this way. Now, I'm just going to do this, and this will make this better. If I just figure out how to, how to get my mind set on this thing, then it will all work. And Psalmist is like, look, I can't. God, you have to call, you have to work in me and cause me, strengthen me. Teach me, show me, give me the understanding. I, I can't do it my, myself. Lead me, Lord Jesus. Cause me to delight in you. But I, I can follow all the rules. If I just followed all the rules with no delight and no desire and no wholehearted steps. It's just hollow, empty religion. That's not what the psalmist wants. It's my delight. I, I want to walk this way in this path according to your statutes and your commands because that's what I want to delight in. 
I want to do it to the end. No holding back, no reservation, wholeheartedly. But I need you to work in me for that to become a reality. Lead me, Lord Jesus, to delight in you and your path. I will say I love that the psalmist chose to use the word path right there in verse 35. That word, it comes from a verb. It, it means to tread. So when it's used as a noun, it is the trodden path. It's the trodden way. A trodden path is one that's been worn down by years and decades and generations of use. It's like going into the woods and you're surrounded by all these trees, but your eyes just begin to focus and all of a sudden this path comes and you see that animals have been walking that path for generations. They've beaten that thing down, the needles and, and, and the leaves and all of it's down because this has been the path. They've all gone to the source, the food, the water, for as long as they've been using it. It's the trodden path. That's what the psalmist wants. Nothing new, nothing innovative. This way, it, it's not something that we're all of a sudden creating up on the spot. In fact, it's reminiscent of Jeremiah chapter 6, 16, when the Lord says through Jeremiah, stand at the crossroads and look. Ask me for the ancient path trodden ways. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. You and I in the Western church, we're educated beyond our level of obedience in this stuff. We don't need anything innovative. You don't need a new book or a new podcast to talk to you about this way. We're living according to God's statutes. We know these things already. What we need is for a heart to cry out to God, cause me to desire your way. Cause me to desire the path of your statutes. Cause me to discern how they shape my decisions. Lead me in that way, down that path. Give me the strength to walk accordingly. Cause me to desire, to want this beyond everything else. Cause me to want this to the end, wholeheartedly. This is the psalmist's desire. This is how he begins the stanza. This is what he wants. And we're meant to ask ourselves as we hear it and listen to it, is this our desire? Is it reflective of our want? See, what the psalmist knows and what he's about to get into is that this way isn't easy. If you've been reading this psalm, you've already seen that things get in the way, right? There are dangers lurking along the way. It's not an easy way, which is why when he comes to the stanza, it's nothing but causative petitions. You're going to have to work in me. Jesus would say something very similar when he would speak of the difficulty. Jesus would look at his followers and say, you're going to have to enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. 
It was his roll call of sorts. You can go down the wide path and you can be somebody. You can make a name for yourself. There's another way. It's a narrow way. It's a harder way. I may not see you the same way. I may not end up in the exact same place, but it's the path that leads to life. Psalm 119, verses 33 through 40, the danger that lurks, the narrowing of the path is all about desire. It's all about what we really want because ultimately it's our desires that drive our steps in life, that direct our life down the path that we're going to follow. That's the danger that the psalmist is warning of in this stanza. Look at verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Here's the danger. Competing desires. What's the danger? A divided heart. The psalmist is well aware of his own heart, of your heart, of my heart, that they are going to bend towards either selfish gain and worthless things or towards the Lord in his way. When he prays there for God to cause him to incline his heart, that's the word for bending, like taking something and forcibly bending in a different direction. He's saying, bend me away from these things. It's going to go one way or the other. Bend my heart away from selfish gain. And again, he's not demonizing and criticizing money or resource in that sense. The danger has always been not those things in themselves, but what our hearts begin to think those things will do for us. And we begin with our hearts to be fixated upon that gain and what we think it will do for us, whether it's the prestige or the power or our comfort and ease in life, it becomes what we focus on. And the psalmist knows it. He knows it. If he is going to, to the end of his days with a whole heart, follow this way that God has laid out, God is going to have to bend his heart. Because this is what gets in the way. He knows his own propensity towards these things. Shiny object syndrome has always been around. And no one is immune. And in fact, I love this. Ted Tripp, you might be familiar with Ted. His brother Paul is a, is a counselor. He's written some amazing books. We, we have them here. Ted Tripp is his older brother. He's actually written on parenting and family. But he did an interview with his brother Paul. And in the interview, he said this. I used to think that I was frugal and not attracted to materialism. Then my book started to sell. And I had all this money. And I found out that I really wanted all this stuff. It wasn't that I was immune to materialism. I was just poor. <laughs> True story. Come on. 
competing desires, divided hearts. These are the things that cause our taste and desire for God's way and God's word to be dulled, to be overwhelmed, and the psalmist knows it. He knows that if his heart is tilted towards selfish gain, then he's going to find himself leaning in that direction over and over again. It's pretty easy sometimes in the church to spot that in our own hearts. We get ready to write that check or set that money aside in our online deposits accounts to give to the church. When it becomes, well, I could have gotten myself all of that, but I'll give this to the church and God. We realize we've forgotten. It's not mine anyway. It's all his. And I'm thinking of it now in terms of what I could gain and what I'm letting go of. Showing something that's beginning to take root in the desire of my heart. If my eyes are fixed on empty things, worthless things. It's because my heart is tilted in that direction. And here's the thing. Colonel Boyd, he was right. You want to go that way and be somebody and have those things, whatever the gain you think is that will bring you, you might get it. But it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you something of yourself. And what I really want you to see and hear as you go through this is the humility and self-awareness of the psalmist. He knows the propensity of his own heart. And so he doesn't resolve himself to fix everything. He, He recognizes his ultimate dependence and he cries, God, bend my heart to your testimonies. And I love that it's that word he uses in this verse. I've forgotten the top of my head how many different ways he speaks about God's word throughout Psalm 119. I think it's like 14 different ways he speaks about it. And I love that he uses testimonies here. A testimony is a legal word. It's the word of someone who has taken an oath and gotten in the witness stand. The psalmist just says, bend my heart, incline my heart to your testimony, to your declaration truthfully about reality. Bend my heart to your testimonies that you've given me in your word. You've spoken clearly about what's real. You've spoken clearly about true life. You've spoken clearly about the path, about the way in which we're to follow. Bend my heart to your testimonies. And avert my my gaze from hollow, non-life-giving realities. The truth is, we all know it. Our hearts tend to become cold and dull and hard and blind to the way of the Lord when they're divided with the desire for selfish gain. I love the way John Piper said it. He said, we we have all in those moments put God's sweet kindness on the tongue of our soul without tasting the sweetness. We've seen unspeakable love without feeling loved. We've seen the greatest power and felt no awe. We've seen immeasurable wisdom and felt no admiration. We've seen the holiness of wrath and felt no trembling, which means, as 
Matthew 13 says, we're seen without seeing. We're opening up his word and we're checking it off the box. We're coming in to gather with God's people is one more thing to do. We've made sure we've met our commitment to serve or to do this or, or to go to this place to do this. And we're seeing without seeing because the desire of our heart is on something else. The path that we're wandering down, that our feet are going, are being guided entirely differently. And our hearts have become cold and numb, no longer desiring his way and his word. And it's dangerous. Dangerous to our souls. But Jesus was very clear, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke out his word. His testimony of reality. His way towards the trueness of life. Which is why Paul would write to the church and say, you've got to kill the desire for these other things. Because if you do not kill them, they will choke this out. They will kill you. That fight starts here in Psalm 119, verse 36. Incline, bend my heart to your testimonies and not to these other things. And I'll just say this morning, if you're here and you can sense that desire in your heart for the Lord, for his way, for his testimonies, thank him and ask him to intensify that desire to continue to cause you to desire him, to want him, for him to teach you, to give you the wisdom you need and the strength you need to walk in that way. If you're here and you're honest with yourself and you would say that desire has cooled off a bit, you know what it is, but it's cooled off. Ask him to fan it into flame. Ask him to stoke it back into full burn. And if you're here and you would say, I I know something of that desire, but if I'm really honest, it's going. Gathering here, going to his word, doing the things, it's seen and not seen. I get that. There's no real desire in my heart for his way or his path. Friends, you don't have to be stuck there. The way forward is the way of humility. He already knows that. Just be honest with him. And ask him to do in you what you can't even muster up in yourself. The strength to ask on your own almost. He's merciful. He's gracious. Incline my heart to your testimonies. So that I don't drift. Don't begin to wander down the wrong path. And my life doesn't end up consumed with a Christian veneer, but a desire to be somebody in the world. Incline my heart to you. Do in me what I can't do for myself. Give me life, he says, in your ways. 
Because we know at the deepest part of our soul that God is the source of life. His way is the way of life. And the battles in this life that we live are fought at the level of our desires. The psalmist reminds us that that our God is a sovereign God. He rules the heart. He can restore what, what may even seem lost. Incline my heart to you. And look, you may feel like you have no place or confidence at all to even make that kind of petition to the Lord. Well, listen to the psalmist's end. He wants you to be encouraged and to have this confidence. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold. Eighth verse, first verse that doesn't start with a causative. He's literally saying, all that I've taken you to is right here. Look, pay attention. That's what behold means. Look, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. The way of God, the path of his commandments, he says is confirmed to us by a promise in verse 38. Once God promises something, his character, his righteousness is at stake in him keeping it. And the psalmist is declaring here that he knows that God to this point, to when he has written this psalm, has kept his promise repeatedly. That God is nothing if not faithful and steadfast. Week by week as the scroll will be opened and be read, he'd be reminded. Sacrifice by sacrifice, feast by feast, festival by festival. His heart being re-narrated, retold the story of God's faithfulness to his people. Delivering them from slavery in Egypt. Bringing them to the land that he promised. Restoring them back to him cycle after cycle as they would turn and fall into false paths. Even now, by the time this is written, bringing his people back from exile, in, from Babylon, back to the land he gave them. He knows the faithfulness of God to his promise. And so it's God's steadfast faithfulness that he leans into as he prays for life. Life in your righteousness. If he can have that kind of confidence, how much more so you and I? Who on this side of God's story know what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1 when he says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He spoke by his law. He spoke by his prophets. He, he, he directed the way in which his people were to go. But now in these days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for our sins, after coming and taking on flesh, and living in this hostile, fallen world, the life that you and I were created and intended by God to live, a life of wholehearted desire to walk according to the ways of his Father. He laid his life down on a cross to be brutally sacrificed, to pay the price that we deserve to pay for the paths that we follow, for the desires of our heart to be somebody, for the selfish gain and the worthless things we get so easily fixated on. 
And God accepted his sacrifice for our sin and vindicated it by raising Jesus from the dead three days later and seating him at his right hand in glory. Keeping his promise. Paul would say it this way. But now the righteousness of God has been made known apart from the law. Apart from the law and the prophets. Though they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All know what it is to have a divided heart. Misguided desires. Captivated by the sense of need of selfish gain and worthless things. But all are also justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Jesus. Whom God put forward as a sacrifice by his blood. This was to show God's righteousness, his righteousness, his steadfastness, his faithfulness to his promise. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So you and I can pray like the psalmist in these verses, in your righteousness give me life because God has revealed fully his perfect righteousness in his son. In his son, apart from the law and the prophets and the commands, his perfect righteousness, his perfect faithfulness, his perfect steadfast love to his promise. In him, there is life. It's by the means of his righteousness that we can ask, lead me, guide me, restore to me the joy and the desire of my salvation and your grace. Give me understanding. Maybe to walk according to your statutes along your way. Bend my heart towards you and, and your way and away from all these things that seek to compete for that desire. It's because of him. As we get ready to respond to God's word this morning, as we do week in and week out, we, we take communion together, taking a piece of bread and dipping it in a cup and in a way remembering and going back to the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples before he went to the cross. And it was at that meal that Jesus said that this cup that he was pouring out is poured out for us and it's the new covenant in his blood. And as we read Psalm 119 and we think about these verses and we prepare to respond, we realize that Jesus died, that these prayers would be answered. It was by the shedding of his own blood that he obtained for us the new covenant that God had promised. That his righteousness, the faithfulness to his promise would be revealed. God had said, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I'm going to put it within you. I'm going to remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you. And this is what he says. I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God promised that. His character and his righteousness is at stake in his fulfilling that promise. He fulfilled that promise perfectly and completely in his son. That is the basis for all of our prayers and the confidence that we can have to ask God to lead us, to teach us, to give us understanding, to bend our hearts towards him, to give us the desire and the taste for walking in his ways. 
It's not about our resolve to do these things. We're not asking him for this new desire and fresh desire for him and his word and his way because now we're resolved to do really well at it and keep it really hard. No, we're asking him on the basis of his own son's blood and righteousness. So this morning as we respond to God's word and you come forward as a follower of Jesus, if you repented of your sin and you've believed upon Jesus and Maybe today your desire for him and his ways has cooled off. Maybe it is just a, a, a barely glowing ember, it seems, in your heart. As you are coming forward, you are declaring your confidence in God's faithfulness to his promise. Let this morning, as you take communion, be your declaration of your plea that, that God incline your heart to him. Restore to you the joy and the desire, the taste for his way. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to respond together to his word. Heavenly Father, we we ask this morning for Jesus' sake, for (laughs) the sake of your son, for the sake of his infinitely precious blood. Do in us what we can't do in ourselves. Incline our heart to you. Bend it to you and your ways. Bend it away from competing desires. Bend it away from that desire to to be somebody. Bend it to you and your way. Lead us in the way of, of life according to your word. Restore to us the joy of our salvation and the delight that we have, maybe once had, in you and in your words. We ask that you would do that this morning for Jesus' glory and our deepest joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.